Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Pink Bike Podcast with me, Mike Levy. Today's show is probably going to be one for all the bike nerds out there because I'm talking to Jason Chamberlain, who you may or may not have heard of before, but who's responsible for some suspension designs and bikes that you definitely know about. Now, Jason was a senior design engineer at Specialized for a long time and is responsible for, I think... Well, we're going to get into this, but I think the majority of the horse link bikes, including a bunch of different demo downhill bikes, and these days, he's helping to develop Intense's new downhill bike that we've seen under Aaron Gwynn at World Cups. So we have plenty to cover, but first, Jason, thank you for nerding out with me today. Where are you, and how are you? Mike, how are you doing? I'm great. I'm great. I'm still in Northern California, um, just living life, having a great time. Good. You and I go back. We were we were just talking about this before we press record, but we've known each other for a hell of a long time, and we've definitely done a lot of nerdy bike things together in the past, haven't we? We sure have. Uh, you know, I was at Specialized twenty plus years, and I think you were at Pink Bike about that long. And I knew you before you had any tattoos. I remember that stupid <laughs> first tattoo you got, and uh, yeah, we've talked about a lot of cool bike projects over the years. Yeah, for sure. Um, I guess my first question should be something like, you were an engineer at Specialized for how long, first of all? And it's probably a long list, but how many of the bikes were you responsible for while you were there? Yeah, I was there 24 years. Um, not quite half my life, but I was there a long time. And uh, the company was much smaller when I started and grew into the behemoth it is today. And I was uh, primarily a full suspension frame design engineer. I worked on uh, the very first Epic, the very first Stump Jumper FSR, uh, the second generation of enduro bikes, and all of the demos were bikes that I was lead engineer primarily on for almost all of them. Wow, all the demos. All, all the demos, except the very last one. Uh, I helped Brian Robinson uh, develop the, the current six-bar one. He was the lead engineer on that. But all the ones before that, yeah, I was, I was the, the main guy. Holy cow. We're, we got a lot of ground to cover. Do you, <laughs> do you have a favorite bike of all of those bikes? Or maybe a favorite demo, actually? Favorite demo? You know, I love the original Demo 9 because it was so crazy, nine honking inches of travel, and it was just over-the-top everything. Um, but I, I really love the, I call it the Demo X-Ray. It's the bike that's single-sided because when you turn it around and look at the backside, you can see the shock and it's all exposed. So the, the Carbon Demo um, that has the asymmetrical seat tube with the exposed shock on the one side and the concentric bottom bracket. I really, really loved that one. And I would have loved to see it last a little longer because pro that, that layout probably wasn't as optimized as it could have been until uh, for the first generation. Um, but I just loved the, the, you know, the mechanics could take the shock out of the bike so fast and it was just asymmetrical and organic and carbon. It was just one of my favorites. I'm making notes because I definitely have some questions about that concentric pivot downhill bike later sure. on this podcast. But I, I want to start uh, way before that. Um, I want to talk about horse link suspension systems with you because obviously FSR is a horse link and you worked with that, I think, for the majority or, or all of your time at yeah, Specialized. Right. Um, so I should probably get you first to define a horse link layout for everybody listening. A horse link layout. Well... 
I think four bar linkage is, is a better word for it. Uh, four bar linkage is a classic engineering textbook book term where you've got four bars or four links and four sets of pivots. And, uh, you know, technically short link bikes and VPP bikes, they're also, um, they're also four bar bikes, but the horse link version of a four bar bike puts a pivot down and below the rear dropout. And what that does is <clears throat> gives you great control over the kinematics, whether it's the leverage rate of the shock or it's the anti-squat, anti-rise, pedal kickback, all those parameters are really easily uh, controlled and optimized in a horse link design. And so, uh, of course, I looked at every design out there, Specialized would buy every competitor's product out there, we'd build our own prototypes, um, test everything, and we always, always came back to the four bar because it was, not only was it, did it meet our performance characteristics, but it was a great structure to make things really light and really stiff and really durable pivots. So it was a great structural layout in addition to a performance layout. So you already answered my next question, which was going to be, I, I see four bar or horse link on everything from an XC race bike to the full on downhill bike. And I was going to ask you what about horse link makes it so adaptable. Um, but it sounds like it's the ability to change all those different pivot positions by, you know, very small amounts or maybe large amounts, right? Yeah, it's super versatile, uh, which means you can mess it up as easily as you can build a great bike. And everybody in the early days was playing with, you know, crazy different suspension designs. And it took everybody a long time to really figure out how does the human body and the pedaling motion interact with, with the bicycle. So the Horst uh, Link four bar design is super versatile. You can build it really, really lightweight. You can build it really robust and you can fine tune the, the parameters based on what you want to do, whether you want to focus more on bump performance or you want to focus more on pedaling performance. Um, it's, it's adaptable to everything without any compromise. Yeah. So Jason, you, you've been around for a while. Did you ever ride those first horse link bikes, the amps, the B1, two and threes? I did. Uh, I sold those in the bike shop I worked in before I graduated oh, wow. college. Yeah. So I'm very familiar with the, those horse amp bikes and, um, what I said earlier in the early days, nobody really understood it very well, including Horse Lightner. <laughs> yeah, uh, some of those bikes were good, some of them not so good. Uh, it was it was a real time of development for everyone, and uh, Specialized purchased the Horse Lightner patent for four bar FSR uh, while I was there. And uh, you know, we the, the engineers at Specialized at the time had were completely redoing and revisiting, you know, the way Horst had approached it uh, to try to make them better. And so, yeah, I, I, I remember those horse bikes pretty good. And, and you might remember the Mongoose sold a version of the horse bike as well. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> was, that, was that the one with that uh, strange shock under the top tube? It was that strange coil sprung Yeah, Yeah, shock? it had a, a tiny four-bar linkage at the fork crown. Is that the one you're thinking of? Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. that's – It was okay. like a, a steel <laughs> welded crown fork and the top had a tiny uh, four-bar linkage with a steel spring. And frankly, those were terrible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah fair, fair enough. Well, we were learning. We were learning anyway. 
Um, let's stick on Horse Link for a little bit longer. How do you tune that design versus maybe, say, a four-bar Horse Link design on a downhill bike? Like, Can you contrast those two approaches and what the results might look like, how different they are? Yeah, I'll, I'll just speak in general terms because, you know, every company has a little different approach on how they're going to tune it. And even companies go through different phases where they, they optimize a bike towards a different parameter. But with four bar bikes, you can optimize it for whatever you want. And, um, you know, sometimes things are the opposite of what you might think. So you might design a downhill bike to focus on pedaling rather than bump absorption, because this is all theoretically, theoretically, you make up time on a downhill track when you're standing and sprinting. That's an opportunity to make up time. So you might want that bike to perform great under pedaling at that moment so you can make up time. And then the bump performance is uh, secondary. So it might sound counterintuitive, but it kind of depends on the rider and the, what the tracks look like uh, in, 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 in any given year. Remember, I'm talking way back in the 90s, I went to world championships in Vail, Colorado and saw what the guys were doing. And what people were doing then was completely different than the downhill tracks today. So you, you might have certain tracks, certain years, certain decades, certain riders that um, benefit from a different style of bike. So it all kind of depends. Um, you, you can design it to be uh, you know, whatever focus you want. And when you start looking at the six bar bikes, that adds another degree of freedom. So you can isolate the shock performance from the pedaling performance, from the anti-rise and the anti-squat. So a lot of people ask, why does a six bar bike have so many links? Why do you need so many? Well, it gives you, it separates the shock performance from the, the kinematic performance. and gives you one more tuning option. Okay. All right. So it's, it's not as simple as saying like this four bar cross country bike is just, it needs to have like more any squat. It's going to have a higher pivot that, or whatever it may be versus the downhill bike. It's not nearly it's that, not that simple, simple at all. It's a very careful balance. And a lot of times um, marketing people will just say, Oh, it's got more anti-squat, more anti-squat. Well, you don't necessarily want more anti-squat. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we hear. At our end, you know, we hear that like, oh, we've added 5% more anti-squat and I get on it and I don't know. <laughs> you know they yeah, all you, never hear anybody say, <laughs> you never hear anybody say they have less anti-squat or less progressive, but you definitely are designing in both directions on, on all platforms. Yeah. You know, and then obviously you have suspension technology that goes into that too. I, I was at a field test recently and it was a uh, short travel bikes and we had this one bike that... It was so close to being good, but the shock, I think it had a digressive tune on the shock and it felt like a real strong push, yeah, to get yeah. it, you know, and it, to me, it, it ruined that bike. So you could have a killer suspension design and you spent a ton of time, but then am I right in saying then you might get like a product manager who believes that, you know, the bike needs this tune. And then everything goes out the window. Well, speaking, you know, from, from my experience, uh, Brandon Sloan and uh, Brad Benedict and myself at Specialized, we always very carefully um, orchestrated the shock performance with the frame performance. Now, I don't know what everybody does, but I do know in the early days, 
um, Fox had extremely small air volumes on their shocks. And we didn't like how any of those rode. So we went back to Fox and said, we want more air volume. And they're like, nah, nobody wants more air volume. We're like, no, we need more air volume. We need a more linear spring. And so Specialized was one of the first to start pushing for large volume springs, uh, large volume air springs, which perform more like a coil spring. So uh, it's always critical for any frame designer to work with the shock maker and make sure that your parameters are matched up. I would also say it's critical to, I'm going to give specialized some, I'm going to give Brandon Sloan <laughs> and you guys some kudos too, because it's critical that you have product managers that shred <laughs> and you guys go hard. <laughs> I've been at some press camps with you yep, guys. Those are, guys are good. <laughs> you're not messing about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so let's get back to developing bikes and how often, Jason, were you looking into a bike design or a suspension design that wasn't a four bar when you were at Specialized? I guess my question would be, you would everything was four bar, but did you ever spend time investigating other course, options during those Of course. Uh, every, every brand does. Um, I'm certain that Trek has a garage full of Specialized bikes and Specialized has a garage full of everybody else's bikes. And um, it's the same at other companies as well. Um, currently, I work at Amazon and I work in the devices group. And I can tell you they have every single electronic device from every other company in the world right there available to take apart, break apart, smash yeah. apart, test. Um, so it's, it's part of any industry. You have to know what your competitors are doing and you invest in buying uh, all your competitors' products. Yeah. How often when you rode competitors products, say, say there was 10 bikes, how often were you like, <laughs> Oh damn, this is good. You know, we don't need names. I'm just curious uh, how often it happened. This is gonna give me a lot of crap, but honestly, not that often there, there were not that many that uh, oh, really yeah. impressed us. And part of it is, you know, we're kind of used to the recipe we put into the bikes that specialize. So we were naturally, uh, bias towards that and anything that felt different, you know, didn't necessarily feel, uh, better. It was different, often worse, sometimes a little better, but you know, it, it's kind of hard to be unbiased, but, um, yeah, more often than not, um, I, I was not impressed with the, the other stuff I wrote. Ah, oh, I'm going to be in so much trouble for saying that. <laughs> okay. No, it's good. <laughs> Honesty, dude. <laughs> People appreciate it. <laughs> Uh, how Okay, so how often would you or did you ever make a rideable prototype that wasn't a four-bar design? Um, uh, a lot. <laughs> yeah. Oh, really? Like, is there like single pivot demos or, you know, like were there six-bar <laughs> demos like years Yeah, ago? let's just say there's everything. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to drag it out of a folks. <laughs> there, there's some of everything uh, Fair that we did at Specialized, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I'd love to get into that room. That's for sure. I think uh, what's funny is, uh, you're listening. believe it or not, storage space is always tight. So you wouldn't believe the prototypes that get uh, smashed and discarded and how rapidly they're not preserved. <laughs> oh, I I know, I know. And in the in the heat of the moment, I feel like that's like the answer that makes sense. But then 10 years go by and you're like, oh, that thing was neat. You know, like 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I saved a lot of stuff. I'll, I could send you a picture from my garage. I saved uh, one of every frame that I worked on, and more often than not, wow. someone needed a frame. Oh, well, why didn't we save this? Why didn't we save that? I'm like, well, I saved one, so let me bring it in. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, let's move on to the great hope. Gearboxes. No, no, don't say it. <laughs> <laughs> I need to. I want to talk to you about. I know you and I are on the same page here. I'm pretty sure, but are we? But I want to talk. I think so. Well, as a suspension designer, a gearbox has to be a, an idea that you are a fan of. Just purely suspension performance. Am I right? Purely suspension performance. Yeah, I'd love to get rid of the drivetrain constraints. Yes, that is true. So can you can you explain what those constraints are with a derailleur and a cassette and all that and chainring? Um, you know, your your chain slapping around and your derailleur being exposed and being fragile um, and having to route the chain so that it it not only shifts as well as doesn't affect the suspension or does affect the suspension to the level that you want it to. Uh, those yeah. are, uh, constraints, um, as well as, you know, tire clearance, chain clearance, chain ring clearance, all those things. Uh, it, it, it's, a, it's, it's tough to package, but I'd say the industry's done a pretty good job today. Everyone does a great job, you know, putting all that into a bike currently. The reason why you don't see gearboxes is because there's too many drawbacks to the gearbox itself, uh, which is why everyone is still fine tuning, uh, traditional derailleur drivetrains. Yeah. So it sounds like you like the idea, but the gearboxes themselves, too much, too many drawbacks for them to make sense. I, I think like on a downhill bike, they might make more sense, Jason. I would agree with you. I think uh, a gearbox downhill bike with just a few gears is, is a great idea. In fact, um, Specialized and myself and Sam Hill and JC and Brendan Faircloth and uh, very early young Troy Brosnan, we were the first team to start experimenting with um, um, only six gears on your, um, I, I take that back, I, not, definitely not the first, but we went real hard with only six gears um, on the cassette. And the reason I did that was because everybody's running pinecone cassettes, right? A road cassette that was, you know, 1123 with 11 or 10 or 11 or 12 gears. And Brendan Faircloth one day says to me, every time I shift, I double shift. I'm like, well, what do you mean you double shift? Oh, I double shift. Every time I switch gears, I have to click twice. And I said, well, that sounds like you have twice too many gears then, wouldn't you think? He's like, oh, probably. And so I started making cassettes that had half as many gears, five, six gears. And those guys loved them because they didn't have to double shift. It was much more compact, very simple. And at the same time, uh, we introduced the nine-tooth cog that I borrowed from uh, Shimano. And so Sam Hill won the world championships, and those guys raced on um, nine twenty-four cassettes that were uh, six or seven speed, I think it was. And that's what eventually became, uh, you know, the SRAM downhill cassette that's that's just got six or seven gears on it and um also um, i will say that's what popularized 10 tooth cogs because nobody wanted to go down smaller than 11 but when we started proving on the racetrack that you could go smaller than 11 then mines were open to nine and 10 tooth cogs and then that opened the door to single speed wide range cassettes so 
um, that all came from racing. The, the fact that we're all driving single speed drivetrains came from those early days of racing with Sam Hill. I remember that funny little cassette. I think I was there to see uh, a demo or a bike of some sort. And I remember you brought out that cassette and that <laughs> funny little driver free help yep. thing. And I was like, oh, this, it makes, it makes a lot of sense. And all the things you're describing, like the downhill bike drivetrain or drivetrains in general, they're pretty dang advanced. These I'm going to make a lot of people mad. <laughs> they're pretty dang advanced these days. Like they work well. Like for me, they've been yeah. quite reliable. And I know you got the thing dangling down, so on and so forth. Yeah. But like a lot of people have a lot of luck with or don't have a lot of trouble with a traditional drivetrain. Um, but these days... Would you, if you were designing a, a downhill bike from scratch, like would you put a gearbox on a downhill bike these days, or are modern drivetrains so good that like it ain't worth the hassle, right? Um, speaking completely, Jason Chamberlain, not affiliated with any bike company. Um, yeah, I think it's a great experiment to put a gearbox on a downhill bike if it only had you know five six gears. That would be very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But the, the argument that you hear a lot is that um, companies haven't put the amount of refinement into a gearbox as they have into a traditional drivetrain. That's why they, they don't work as well. And if we all just put resources into a gearbox, we could get them to work great. But there's some fundamental challenges with gearbox that no amount of technology is going to be able to overcome. And what... Um, uh, you know, I've ridden all the gearboxes out there for many years on lots of different bikes and tried them all, tried prototypes, tried next gen, tried tried them all. And the, the challenges you see with gearboxes is that you really can't shift under load very well. Not every gear step shifts the same. Some are harder to shift than others. Some gears are louder than others. Some gears have more friction than others. Overall, the whole system has more friction. And they're also kind of mushy at your pedals. They're not really crisp and, and firm. So there's, there's a lot of drawbacks that are just a, a question of physics in gearboxes that make it a tough sell right now um, widespread. And can we get over all those? I'm not sure, sure we can. And I don't think customers are ready to uh, accept all those downsides just yet. But, you know, there's some great bikes with a pinion gearbox out there. And there, there's some pretty nice gearboxes out there. But... Uh, you just can't quite beat a, a regular drivetrain yet. Yeah. I posted a podcast about the Shimano Link Glide and Q's stuff this morning. And I talk a bit of shit about gearboxes and uh, a pink bike user, uh, <laughs> Double Crown Addict, shout out. He, he, he made the very valid point that e-bikes on or e-bikes using gearboxes kind of makes sense. You know, you're not really concerned about the weight or the friction. Um, the one thing is like shifting under load, of course. I'm not sure how that would work out, but if there's any place where they belong, it's on an e-bike, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. Those are great points. You can overcome the friction with a motor, but shifting under load is, is tricky for sure. This week's Pink Bike Podcast is presented by Intense Cycles. Intense is proud to celebrate its 30th anniversary this year. And since day one, Intense has used racing as its process for bike innovation, which shows through in the new Tracer 29 and 279 Enduro models. The Intense Tracer comes in two wheel size options with 170 millimeters of rear wheel travel and an in-tube storage system. 
Check out the new Tracer and the rest of the Intense Cycles lineup at www.intensecycles.com. Now back to the show. Uh, let's let's move on and talk about something that we're seeing a lot of today: high pivot bikes. They are all the rage. Question: Why wasn't there ever a high pivot demo? Well, <laughs> and did you guys you know investigate it? <laughs> oh, exactly. It's in his garage right now. <laughs> yeah, I'll just say that um, Brandon Sloan and I we tried everything all the way back to you know, before the first demo ever came out, before Specialized got back into the downhill game and the free ride game at the time in 2004, I think is when the first demo came out. Um, you know, we looked at everything back then. And so high pivot, low pivot, everything's been investigated within Specialized for sure. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. <laughs> um it seems like even like more recently, only in the last few years, companies have figured out how to make a high pivot bike with an idler that doesn't fall apart or doesn't have like all of the friction. Um, so it seems like they're only just now, like within the last couple of years, they're really getting it better anyway. So uh, let's go back to that demo yeah. with the concentric bottom bracket. What were you trying to accomplish with that one? The main goal was to push the weight as low as possible to keep the center of gravity as low as possible. So literally what we did was took the four pivots, pushed them all down three inches and let's see what happens. And at that point, the main pivot becomes over the top of the, of the uh, bottom bracket. So we made it concentric. Now, a lot of people got very confused. Oh, it's a single pivot. It's a concentric bottom bracket. You know, it was always, a four bar bike it worked like a four bar bike and the fact that the main pivot was concentric was purely you know it was by design but it was an accident that's just where the pivots wanted to be naturally and it didn't detract or change the performance it was still 100 percent a finely tuned four bar linkage bike yeah it still had the axle pivot where the axle pivot belongs and it didn't have the wheel path of a single pivot bike either exactly uh you mentioned at the start of the show that you wished you had more time with that bike. You wish you had developed it further. So what was the drawback? What didn't it do well when it was made? Uh, it didn't quite, you know, maybe it's just the engineer in me, but, you know, nothing's ever perfect when it gets released and you always wish you could go back and fine tune it a little bit. Um, on that bike, we ended up making some more progressive shock links for the downhill team. And then all the customers wanted those links as well. So we offered it aftermarket. So the, the one big thing that I probably would have done different was make it more progressive, which would have been more reflective of uh, the huge hits people were hitting on courses at that time. Oh, really? So just a suspension rate thing, you're not... Um, changing, you know, fundamental design or, or anything about no, it? No, no. The design was great. I mean, all the pivots were, you know, big, big double bearings at every pivot and internal cable routing. And that seat tube was just so elegant and super strong. And, uh, you know, the whole concept uh, was, was terrific. And I, I wish it would have lived on uh, longer because a lot of people really, really loved it. But um, yeah, I, I would have made it a little more progressive. It would probably be the only tweak I would have made. Okay, interesting. When you're developing these bikes, these demos, these downhill bikes, 
How involved were the team racers? Were you constantly testing with them and changing things? Or do you have more local riders that you would use? Uh, both, for sure. Always worked with the top riders. Uh, always worked with the professionals. And it, it's the same thing at Intense. Uh, we work with the top World Cup riders as well as local riders. Because there are local riders that um, are you know, maybe better at articulating exactly what a bike's doing than some of the top athletes. Yeah. Um, so both at Specialized and Intense, there's there's a selection of, um, you know, local riders, very cherished riders that nobody knows, but that are really, really good. And you can give them a prototype and they're buried out in the middle of Oregon or somewhere where no one will see them riding. Um, so we, we can test with, uh, people like that. And then of course we, you have to work with the pros, uh, some, you know, some are better than others, but they're racing at the highest level and their feedback is essential. And we're always working with uh, pros from the beginning, at least at specialized and intense. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's, let's move on to talking about that new intense. Um, you're helping to design that bike that's gone from a, it's gone from a four bar to a six bar layout that the HP4, which was the four-bar bike, I think that's the right name, it might have had the world's longest rocker <laughs> arm on it. That was an interesting design. I think Ellsworth <laughs> holds that distinction still. <laughs> oh, that is true. Yeah, that is true. Fair enough. Uh, what What did you guys like about that bike? Yeah, let me just clarify. Um, the HP4 and HP6, those are bikes designed by Jeff Steber um, with – his engineer, Devin, those two guys are really the heart of those yeah. bikes. Uh, my role is, is very minimal. Um, Intense asked me to advise them on a few topics. And so they invited me to be on the board of directors so they could ask me questions. And uh, so in my spare time with the permission of Amazon, um, I answer questions and help uh, Intense uh, improve their engineering. And uh, so Jeff has I've been in touch with Jeff for years and, and he was showing me those bikes quite a while ago and we were talking about them. Um, but yeah, I want to make it clear that my, my involvement in designing those bikes is, is very, very high level, but I, I did see him from the beginning. Okay. Were you involved with that HP four from the beginning? Did you have any feedback or input on that design? That one was sort of a quick way to jump back into four bar, you know, building a rocker bike is pretty straightforward and specialized did yeah. a couple of rocker bikes. Um, but they were never, our, they were never our favorite layout. Uh, but it's real easy to, to build a, a rocker style bike. And for Jeff and the team, it was a quick way for them to, to test something different than VPP, something they could weld up quickly. So I don't think the HP4 was ever going to be long-term a four-bar rocker bike like that. It was intended to to build a prototype quickly. Oh, that's a that's a really interesting thing to hear. We usually don't see that kind of stuff, you know. Like by the time that we have photos of the bike on Pink Bike, it might still be a prototype, but it's like, you know, this is the <laughs> shape. This is what it's gonna gonna look like. So from our perspective, it was super interesting to see that, like wholesale change but then also hear that that backstory that it was sort of like the first step in the in the development process yeah and you know um, you should talk to jeff he might tell the story a little bit differently but that that's how i understood it 
And, uh, you know, Intense is always has always had racing at their core from the very early days with Sean Palmer. And they were always really into um, the downhill racing scene. And if you look at bigger companies, they have to be concerned with sales and they're very careful when new prototypes get shown to the public. Whereas Jeff Steber being yeah. intense, being the rebel, he doesn't care. This is the bikes we're working on. We'll just show them to you. You know, he's, he's not worried about the world seeing behind the curtain and seeing what, what's going on. So there he's thrilled to show, you know, all the prototypes he's working on. It's definitely a refreshing <laughs> change. That's for sure. The dorks, the dorks appreciate it. <laughs> so the HP six, now yeah. that's a six bar bike, Jason. <laughs> Six bars. It's a That's lot a of lot bars. of bars. It, it, it's kind of com- – yeah, it's kind of complicated. So I see more pivots, more things to look after. And like granted, bikes are way more reliable these days. But I mean it's still a lot of bars. Is it worth the complication? You must <laughs> believe so if you're – if that's the way the bike's yeah, going. Yeah, I think it's worth the complication in certain categories because it is a little more complicated and it is a little more heavier. But that's not uh, so much an issue in the downhill rim. You're already racing heavy bikes and you have on the racetrack, you have mechanics looking over it constantly. So the six bar bike, as I was alluding to earlier, you can separate the shock performance from the kinematics. So your anti-squat, your anti-rise, your braking performance, your pedaling performance can be tuned with the first four bars. Then your shock rate, your leverage rate, that can be tuned with the the two additional bars. And it's the same philosophy that uh, other companies have employed to steer them towards six bar. It gives you more degrees of freedom to fine tune even further. It's eking out as much as possible from the from the design but maybe it's not for an xc bike who knows it's a lot of it's a lot of material for an xc bike yeah it's a lot of extra a lot of extra hardware yeah all right so when you're when new bikes are being worked on like this how much feedback comes from data acquisition and how much feedback comes from the riders themselves well the whole purpose of data acquisition is to correlate what the riders are feeling so Theoretically, you can simulate what the riders are feeling without having to ask the riders what their opinion is. But no data acquisition in the world is ever that advanced or that perfect. So you always are balancing what the computer is telling you versus what the rider is telling you and trying to correlate that. And often there's flaws in the data, the way you interpret the data. And believe it or not, sometimes there's flaws with what the rider is feeling. They're human. They're not always perfect. Um, They're more attuned than most people in the world to how their bike feels because they ride at such a high level. Every little nuance is evident to them. Um, But a lot of times their their feedback might not correlate with the data and you got to figure out, you know, what the truth between the two is. Okay. Do you think it's possible to design a good full suspension bike without data acquisition these days? Uh, is it possible? Yeah, tons of people are doing it. <laughs> it's entirely possible. It doesn't mean it's <laughs> I guess right. It is. <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So 
I guess if if you had that tool, you you would always use it. It's always telling you something that you could use to improve or change the design. Is the yeah, point. absolutely. And working with uh, Loic Bruni and Racing Jack, those guys had a whole dedicated racing bike, and they have data from every track and every race that Loic has ever done. And uh, Aaron and John Hall are doing a bunch of data acquisition as well with Devin, uh, the engineer. And collecting the data has gotten a lot easier. Back in the day, we used to have to <clears throat> buy these tiny strain gauges, they're called, stick them to the frame, calibrate it in a machine, and then go out and ride and uh, connect it to a backpack with a power source and ride around with that. Now, consumers can buy off-the-shelf data acquisition and get all the data you want. <clears throat> So the access to data acquisition has become much, much easier, uh, but still the art of interpreting that data is key. You, you got to know what you're looking at. You got to know how it correlates to the rider, to the track, to what they're feeling and, and how to make things better. Collecting the data is the easy part. Interpreting the data is the hard part. Yeah. You've worked with so many fast riders over the years. Like, like you were, we were talking about Brendan and Sam earlier, and we're talking about Loic now and Gwyn. Over the years, is there one rider that stands out to you as being uh, the best at developing a bike? Uh, maybe the easiest to work with or providing the best feedback? <laughs> I can't answer that. There's no way I can answer that. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> well, that doesn't mean the other people are, are bad, but I guess like my point is that some people – feel a lot of stuff and maybe that they shouldn't feel or maybe they think they're feeling things and some people are better at developing bikes than other people and sort of sensing that feedback or knowing kind of changes yeah. that that they need um like i would imagine a guy like loic would be like you were saying is i mean a, a mad scientist yeah. when it yeah. comes with that stuff well let me describe it this way some athletes are more interested in the technical aspect and other riders are less interested. Yeah. So someone like Sam Hill, he would just get on his bike and shred and provide minimal feedback and he could go so fast. And, <laughs> you know, people are always ask him, Oh, have you checked the weather for today? He's like, no, when I show up, if it's raining, it's raining. You know, he, he didn't overthink anything. He just went on instinct and feel and was so fast that way. Whereas other riders, uh, Loic and Aaron, those guys want to be involved in the details and the, their, their teammates and engineers provide them those details. So they measure things, they look at them, they discuss them, they go back and forth. And, you know, Loic will, you know, he times every single run and he thinks it through and tries to figure out how can I get, you know, a tenth of a second from this corner or that corner or what, you know, he's really super into it. And so is Aaron. Aaron, um, you know, they very carefully look at the data and try to correlate it to the feel and try to make improvements that make sense. So rather than saying some writers are better or worse, I'd say some are way more interested than others in the technical details. <laughs> That's a nicer way to put it. But as far as far as the best, <laughs> I, as far I as the best, uh, I would probably defer to many of the secret writers that we used over the years. These guys were so fine-tuned oh. into how things worked, and they didn't have the burden of being a professional racer. They just rode their bikes every day out in the woods, private tracks, and they were super valuable to developing stuff. 
<laughs> See, then that is interesting. That is really, really interesting. Okay. Um, I talked to Gwyn a while back about all the different bike designs and suspension layouts yep. he's used over his years of racing and what he's looking for now. And his main thing, or sorry, my main takeaway from that chat was that well, there are there are designs out there that work really well in sort of one situation or another situation. Like something might work well at Peter Maritzburg and the yeah, other bike yeah. works well in Champery, obviously, you know, or Val de Sol. What he wants is an all-around performer that kind of more than a bike that sucks up hits, but also sucks at other stuff, you know? Like he's looking for an all-around bike and hmm. I didn't expect him to say that. We see these guys going so fast that I just – I expected him to say like I need a bike that just levels the terrain. But he's thinking about it a lot more than that. It must be interesting. Yeah, to work Aaron with. is um, – you know, like all the top riders, he has huge natural talent and he also has – you know, is very perceptive to um, to the racetrack. You know, Aaron will, will walk the track at the exact si- same time of day that the race is going to take place so that the light on the rocks is the same. So that's the kind of uh, detail that someone like Aaron will put into it. And, you know, what he's feeling on a particular day, uh, I can see why he wants, you know, something that excels well in pedaling and also excels well in bumps. Um, Like I was saying before, you can make up time in the bumps. You can also make up time on the straights. So having a bike that, kind of does well at all parts of the track i can see the logic in that all right i got a couple more questions about this new intense downhill bike before i let you go jason a lot a lot of new bikes are high pivots there's a lot of bikes that are low pivots but this new bike is sort of like a (laughs) mid pivot thing and it's also it's also a linkage bike so it's it's combining a lot of different stuff. What is the idea behind that? Yeah, I think what you're referring to is the idler placement. High idler, low idler, mid idler. Yeah. So what I think is really genius about what uh, Jeff Steber has done is he took a linkage bike and merged it with an idler bike. Most, if not all, idler bikes out there right now are single pivot idlers. And it took people a while to figure out, well, where should the idler be? High, low? Do we still want, you know, how much anti-squad do we want coming from the idler? Um, You don't want complete isolation. You still want some pedal feedback into the suspension system. And so what Jeff did is built a linkage bike and applied an idler to it, which is really brilliant because you can, to a much better level, um, control your braking forces and your anti-squat and your anti-rise forces Uh, in addition to getting the benefits of an idler design. So it's really quite clever and uh, really pretty cool what he's done right there. Huh. That's super interesting. So on the trail, uh, could you describe what, you know, some, a rider, a racer might, how they might benefit from that? So the primary benefit that riders are harvesting right now from a, a higher pivot Um, idler bike is much more of a rearward axle path and those rearward axle paths uh, soak up bumps really well the the wheel moves out of the way when you hit a log or a rock or something so it's everyone's always talked about rearward axle path rearward axle path for decades as you know in our industry well it wasn't until these high single pivot with idler bikes came out did we really start to see a dramatic amount of rearward axle path 
And so it's a really exciting time uh, where people are starting to look at uh, consumers have opened their minds to an idler pivot. Designers are starting to, to harvest the benefits of an idler, um, which really, again, provides you a high single pivot, which in the past was never possible because it was way too much chain growth and way too much chain pull and too much anti-squat. But the simple addition of that idler has allowed you to get a dramatic rearward axle path, which really soaks up bumps and not have all the downsides associated with it. So when you add a four bar linkage to that, you're getting a rearward axle path, which really soaks up bumps, but you're still able to fine tune your braking performance and your pedaling performance the way you want. It, it kind of sounds like, so like just five minutes ago, we were talking about Aaron telling me that he's looking for a bike that's good at all the things, like more of an all-rounder than a specialist. And it kind of sounds like that's what is going on with yeah, the HP. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. Again, with a four-bar, you can design it any way you like, but it gives Jeff the freedom to put the pivots yeah. right where um, right where his riders want them. And in this case, Aaron wants you know a, a sort of a middle-of-the-road feel that's got the appropriate amount of anti-squat, the appropriate amount of braking independence, and that idler adds the uh, the rearward axle path that really soaks up bumps. So you're able to get, you know, the best of all three worlds. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Jason, we've covered a ton of ground with this one, so we should probably stop there. We've been dorky enough. <laughs> uh, I just want to say thanks for giving us a behind-the-scenes look at suspension and bike development. I found it super interesting, so I'm sure that the other dorks listening will as well. And I look forward to seeing Aaron and the team, how they get on with the new bike. And yeah, we'll keep an eye out for this season. Thanks again, dude. All right. Anytime you bet. Great to see you.